Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the moments we have this morning to be in your presence, to embrace your comfort and remember your goodness. Lord, we specifically uplift the war that's happening right now between Israel and Palestine and um, the loss of life that is there, Lord. We pray for your peace. We pray for wisdom with political leaders, Lord, as they handle this situation, Lord. I pray that um, relief aid would come quickly. Lord, we surrender these sources of anxiety, these sources of grief to you finding rest in the promise of salvation. Help us see where you are already working in our lives and to hear the lessons you are whispering to us. We love you. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you now to turn to chapter 38, verses 1 through 16, and then chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. So because this passage picks up at Job's response to suffering towards the end of the story, let's recap a little bit of what has happened to him so far. At the beginning of the book of Job, we find God stunningly having a conversation with Satan, who has made it his mission to cause Job to curse God. And the Lord responds confidently that no matter what evil is inflicted upon him, Job will remain faithful. And so Satan starts to try and prove otherwise. 
It's important to note that the only thing said about Job's character by those who would be in the know, Job and God, is that Job is a good person and he didn't deserve this. He was a righteous follower of God who was very proud of Job. And Job had a vibrant life, filled with seven sons and three daughters who were sources of great honor in his community. Job was known as the richest man in the East, owning 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 head of cattle, and 500 donkeys, along with a large, beautiful estate run by many servants where elaborate banquets were hosted. Modern-day estimations show that Job's life would be worth over $200 million in the U.S. today. Job was a good man who had a spectacular life. Yet, there is a serpent sneaking, and evil found a foothold. One day, all at the same time, messengers rushed to Job and told him that raiders had, stole, had stolen his cattle, slaughtered his servants, that a fire came up and his sheep were burnt, and that while his children were all eating together in the oldest son's home, the structure collapsed, and they were all crushed to death. All ten of his children died. I can't comprehend this. I don't have children, but I think even for all the parents in the room, this grief is unimaginable to you as well, your whole family dying at once. And there have been words for people who have experienced other kinds of loss, like orphan or widow or widower. But only recently has a new word been created for someone who outlives their children. Historically, there hasn't been one. And it's come from a Sanskrit verb meaning empty. It's pronounced viloma. Job was a viloma. He was empty. And while the pain inside of him must have been blinding, evil didn't rest. And he was also covered with painful, open sores all over his body. In a suffering, four of his friends came to visit him. And you may have heard of Job's friends before. If Job is, is associated with misery, then Job's friends are associated with bad advice. But to their credit, the book says that for the first seven days and seven nights of Job's grief, they sat with him in silence. All they did was offer their company, not saying a word. And we can learn from Job's friend in this way. How often do we sit with people for a week at a time in their grief and put our lives on pause? On the other hand, we can learn what not to say when we break the silence from Job's friends. Because when they did speak, they spewed such terribly harmful religious cliches that Job ended up calling them miserable comforters. Uh, Eliphaz said that Job was suffering because he had sinned and that God was punishing him. Bildad tried to tell Job to remember that God is the God of the universe and too big to be personally concerned with Job's pain, and therefore he shouldn't cry out to him. Zophar was condescending and impatient with Job, telling him to simply think more positively, and you will see change in your life. And finally, Elihu is not only unhelpful, but simply unoriginal, and he simply paraphrased every piece of bad advice in a longer and more pretentious way. If anyone was a justified candidate to ask the question, why, why do bad things happen to good people, it would have been Job. Despite this, 
We find right up to the first verse that we read together this morning that while Job sat wearing the traditional clothes for mourning, he expressed his grief and his pain without ever cursing God. Instead, he cried out to him. This is supported by the whole of chapter 23, something we didn't read today, but it's where Job poetically expressed that his main desire was to see and experience God in the midst of his suffering, his core desire, trusting that it would give him relief. And I find this almost unbelievably inspiring because it causes me to reflect on whether or not I would be able to face the same circumstances of Job would I run closer to God or farther away from him? Maybe we have not experienced the same kind or level of pain that Job did, but with pain being relative, which it is, we have all experienced moments where we have wondered, why is this happening to me or why is this happening to them? We struggle with good and evil existing in the world at the same time. In one turn of phrase or another, we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And this question is ancient. In fact, scholars think that the story of Job is written as a poem is the oldest physically recorded book in the Bible. People have been wrestling with suffering since the very beginning, so the Lord gave them this story to help them with that struggle. But it doesn't help us in the way that we may want it to or expect. Because the book of Job, because in the book of Job, even God doesn't directly answer that question of why. And if God doesn't do it, I'm not going to be able to do it either. <laughs> I'm sorry. But while God doesn't directly answer that question, he does give a response. And God's response is not subtle. The text says that out of a whirlwind, out of a tornado, that the Lord appears to Job. And while the wind is still swirling around him, Job hears the Lord rebuttal with a question of his own. He asked him, were you there? Were you there when I created the world? When I set reality in motion? God goes on to describe the beauty that he instilled within creation. For three whole chapters, the Lord exposes Job to his splendor by showing his involvement in the universe, from his dominion over the powerful elements of nature to his delight in the small details of a fawn. All the while, the Lord asked Job 77 questions on his journey, all of which he could not answer. And I don't think that all of this was to be dismissive of Job's pain, but rather a response to Job's core desire, which was to experience God. When I think of my own experience of suffering beyond the comical week I shared with you, and when I think of the times I've sat with people who are grieving, I have learned that most of the time, people don't really want an intellectual, theological answer when they're suffering. Really, behind their why is this happening is an aching, where is God? And a desire to feel his presence. And God knows that about us. He knew that he was asking Job those questions that the answer was going to be no time and time again. But by God repeatedly asking Job the question of, were you there? The then obvious answer of no would have quickly led Job to think, no, I wasn't there, only you were. You were there for all of it. The Lord was present for it all. 
The Lord's response to Job reminds us all that God is forever present and that he's not a far away in our suffering. And this truth foreshadowed the fact that he took immense and sacrificial measures to ensure that pain would only be temporary and in doing so, experienced more pain than any other person would. We don't worship just a God who is gracious to those who are suffering. We worship a suffering God, Jesus. God became flesh, became human. Jesus came to teach us how to alleviate the hatred that leads to pain in this world. He came to walk as a tangible example of God's will. He came to fight against evil, a fight so cosmically dangerous it killed him. Our God died. And in the mystery and the joy of the faith, three days later, death was defeated. Suffering was ultimately defeated because Jesus rose from the dead victorious. Our salvation was secured for when our bodies eventually suffer and fail, our souls will live on. If we know Jesus, if we accept him as our Lord, we live with the assurance that we are on the temporary side of eternity. And this response of our suffering, of providing eternity with no pain and complete restoration of the world, would have been enough for us to know that God is infinitely good. But he was gracious and gave, gave us even more than that. He gave us access to his presence in the here and now. We must be careful not to minimize suffering, but we must be careful not to minimize the gospel. Reading the story of Job in isolation may leave us feeling unsatisfied, but reading the story of Job within the meta-narrative of God's love for mankind is a gift. God's response to suffering is to invite us into his presence. And so now we're brought to wonder what our response to suffering will be. And based on the story of Job, I wanted to highlight four things. Firstly, we've learned that we will not be able to fully answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people. However, there are certainly incorrect and harmful answers out there. God rebukes the advice given to Job's friends in chapter 42, verse 7. He says, My anger burns against you and against your friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Therefore, we must reject sayings that carry the same messages of the friend's bad advice. Sayings like, you did something to deserve this. It's a sign from God. Have a little bit more faith. Or this is too small for the Lord to care about. He's busy with other things. Or you should really be over this by now. Try changing your mindset or pray harder. Or how about everything happens for a reason. These are ill-informed and uncompassionate. Job teaches us to curb these responses and to push back when they are spoken around us. Secondly, we know that suffering will happen on this earth because we live in the temporary. Our universal mortality is proof of this. We will experience pain and oftentimes we will not always experience complete restoration. In the end of chapter 42, Job gains twice of what he had lost. More cattle, more servants, and even more children. But the text says that Job needed comfort for the rest of his days, even after the blessings. And it's because you don't have replacement children. Just because we will enter into times of blessings and happiness and joy in the future doesn't mean that we leave those experiences of pain unscathed and unaffected. It's a hard reality. But as C.S. Lewis said, 
God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a dev world. The good news is that we don't have to face this reality alone. With God's response to Job asking the question, were you there, we were reminded that we have the ability to commune with the creator of the universe. He's speaking to you. He's with you. And he will give you assurance for your faith while you wait for the fullness of the kingdom of God. Thirdly, because it's in God's character to comfort those who are in pain, so must we. Just because suffering is a part of this world and we're promised that it will one day end doesn't mean that we should be complacent and let our hope create idleness. Just the opposite, for God didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. The gospel is God taking action in order to bring about restoration. He then in turn instructs us, his church, to take action. And he does so in countless verses like Deuteronomy 15:11. He says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Romans 12, 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Hebrews 13, 16, and do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The church is one of the main ways God responds to suffering. We are. And this could be through being intentional with someone you know, going through a hard time, or giving resources to those who are in need, or being involved politically and socially to change systems that damage lives. The Lord uses us clearly in his world. Even in my own life, when I reflect on the times I have experienced God so frequently, it has been through the obedience of others. My answered prayers have usually been in the form of well-timed encouragement and acts of generosity where I could pinpoint the Lord. People experience God through experiences with God's people. Finally, when we are faced with suffering, we can respond with worship. After God revealed himself to Job, he repented. And the Hebrew word for repent is shuv, which means to return. Job worship, he reorientated himself and returned to God. And there's something so powerful about choosing to dwell on God and his goodness when we are hurting. It displays that we are connected to our purpose, which is to be in fellowship with and be loved by God. And it leaves evil in its failure to separate us from him. And so let us end our time in this way and worship to take a moment and dwell on how God assured Job that he never left him. With his forever and intimate presence in mind, let's pray together now, and then we will continue to worship with communion. Lord, we offer up our prayers to you, carrying our own experiences of suffering. We give them to you to hold, to comfort, and to reveal your presence in. Remind us that your presence 
is not contingent on whether or not we feel you were close or far, but because you promised it. We praise you for your love and for the restoration you have already brought to us. We seek you while dwelling on the hope you've given to us for the fullness of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.